Welcome to the Friday edition of Anglican Unscripted, episode 719. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. Today's February 19th, 2022. All right, welcome to another program of Anglican Unscripted, where we sit down and we talk about the news going around the Anglican Communion. We talk about Christian news and sometimes secular news, politics. There's nothing we won't talk about. We just want to keep it interesting for you because, well, why would you watch Unscripted if it's not interesting? George, how's your week going? 11 days till we close on the house. And the mortgage company is still asking me every day for another piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Kevin, uh, I'm wasting away. Uh, people say, are you thinner? No, it's just <laughs> I, am, I am so, oh my goodness. Uh, I, this is a full-time job buying a house. Mm-hmm. I, I've been a rent. I've been a renter uh, all through our ministry or lived in church accommodations, and now we're buying something because I don't plan on going anywhere and uh, again but oh boy is this tough well you got to take out of you're not buying an investment you're not buying uh, real estate you're buying a home a place where you and Susan can sit back and and live out your your next 35 40 silver years you know in (laughs) next to the golf course there Mm -hmm. but it's really hard in today's day and age because uh, after what happened to the mortgage companies in 2006, 7, and 8, they're a little, still a little gun-shy, and they want you to prove anything that you tell them. Hey, I'm a nice guy. Prove it. What? <laughs> well, yeah. there was... I. It's been a long time since I followed professional sports. I used to follow all the sports. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and they had a... Uh, on Tuesday at our... We, our house faces the 18th tee. Uh, 36, we live in a community that has 36 holes, and the, the last hole, the one that goes back uphill to the clubhouse, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, they had a the Ernie Els Autism Classic. Ernie Els is a retired golfer who has a son with autism, and and so this was a uh, had a lot of retired golfers, and I knew nobody under the age of 50. But uh, I was so happy because I recognized some golfers who were popular when I was young. One of them was John Daly, who was that big guy with the blonde. He had the, blonde what was that haircut style? Oh, well, that mullet. Uh, mullet. Oh, yeah. well, he doesn't have a mullet anymore. He's got an Eric McNeese beard, like halfway down, you know, his chest. And it was fun because I was sitting on the back porch and I say, I know that guy. Well, I don't know that guy, but I recognize that guy. So all the old farts are down playing golf in Florida and George uh, and the dogs. The dogs uh, had to be kept indoors because they were barking at everybody. And that sort of ruins the uh, ruins. And they run out and they collect the balls. You know, from the oh. golfers while that's on on the green there. Well, we're not we're not actually on the tee, but you know, if you look that way, the tee is about forty yards that way. So every hook comes into if it gets past the tree line, comes into our yard. And Jasper, our uh, Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, is a trained golf ball hound. He will go out every morning when he does his business, and basically survey the grass to find the de- previous day's golf balls. 
And so we have a giant, we started off with a little bowl and now it's like a bucket from Home Depot, just filled with golf balls that are sliced that people couldn't find. Well, you so mentioned that maybe you mentioned I, maybe, go ahead. Maybe I am becoming bourgeois as a homeowner and uh, taking pride in uh, in my golf ball collection from the house. And I'll soon be talking about paint sele- paint selection and roofing tiles and things like that. Yeah. Uh, for our audience, my Starlink satellite died this week, and Starlink is sending me a brand new one, no charge. They'll pay the shipping and stuff like that. So we're back on the cell connection. So there's a little gap between George and I when we're talking. If it looks like he's interrupting me or I'm interrupting him, blame AT&T. Don't blame uh, us. This is just our, our normal show. We do it as best we can. You mentioned that you used to follow sports all the time. I did too. When I was younger and had time on my hands, I would follow the basketball, a little bit of baseball and football. I don't have time anymore for that. And so I will only follow the late playoffs and the World Series or the Super Bowl. I don't have time for the rest of that. And for me, that's much more enjoyable because I'm watching at the very end of the season just the best of the best. I don't have to follow it the whole season long. And that's less stress and less time. Well, it's, it's of course, spring training for baseball is about to start, but there's a there's an owner's lockout, so they're not going to have as there's no game schedule yet because the owners have locked out the players while they do contract negotiations. Last professional game I went to was I would take kids from the church down to the Phillies preseason games down in Clearwater. And Kevin, I am getting old. I used to be able to go and sit for three or four hours to watch a baseball game. I can't do that anymore. I mean, I just can't do it. And the kids, they couldn't get past three innings without wanting to go explore the stadium, buy popcorn. The ability to sit still has been lost. The ability to concentrate, to follow a baseball game, play by play. Well, I'm deteriorating mentally, as you all know, by watching this show. Yes. But our culture at large is not able to devote the time to a baseball game that they once did. There's a video that was going around YouTube about three or four, maybe five years ago, where a sorority had gone to a baseball game. And all they did the whole time was eat chaperas and uh, text on their phone. I'm going to try and get that video and, and put it up here for you. Um, and that's just the, the millennial generation just doesn't have the, the angst and ability to sit through long periods of, of what we thought was wonderful entertainment, not but 10, 15, 20 years ago. I remember going to Twins games as a little guy and, wait, it's over? Ah. Oh. And Dad's like, yeah, it's over. I just paid 40 bucks for hot dogs. <laughs> you know, things well, change. There it, and TV has changed. I remember it was a big deal to watch ABC's Wide World of Sports on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, three hours. I was... Uh, I was actually I was donating blood yesterday and in you have to sit in a chair while they're doing this and people have the TV on it was on the Olympic channel and it's curling and it says oh this is curling and friends watching a stone slide down the ice uh, I this is a sport this is how low we of Americans have fallen George, you're this, abandoning you know, our Canadian audience here. Okay, George and I love curling, just not at the Olympics. <laughs> no, I agree. To the exclusion of all others. I mean, uh, come on. All right, let's move on to our first story. Um, and 
we used to tease Pope Francis when he would do a, an interview, especially if he was answering journalist questions on the plane, because the office, the home office in the Vatican, would have to say he didn't mean what he said. Well, now we have an interview that Justin Welby just did, and I'm waiting for some corrections, but we'll have to see what happens. But let's talk a little bit about the Justin Welby interview he did, because it reveals a lot about Justin Welby, and I like that personal touch. That's you know We used to watch ABC and stuff like that, their morning show where they would do the, the personal interviews, but maybe it was a bit too personal. And maybe the Barbara, the Barbara Walters interview. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you and I came up in this interview. Maybe George, tell us a a little bit about the interview. Well, Justin Welby did an interview with the radio times, which is sort of the British equivalent to TV guide. Um, And he has an upcoming radio series uh, of, uh, it's called the archbishop interviews. And he talks to a variety of people. We've mentioned this in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two people I would want to watch are Tony Blair, uh, watch one oily person uh, talk to another oily person, yeah. and Stephen King, the horror novelist. And I think Stephen King is not a Christian, so I wonder how He's that will atheist. come off. Yeah. Well, so th- this was done ahead of Welby's uh, premiere series. And they asked him some questions, and the interviewer really got under his skin. And I don't think it—I don't think it was Welby at his best because he revealed things about himself, and he said things that I think were maybe the fault was he was trying to humanize himself, make him feel more akin to the people in the audience. But I don't think that if that was a strategy, I don't think it worked. But they've talked about the COVID shutdowns, and Justin Welby said, uh, um, "Perhaps we perhaps we didn't do the the right thing." Um, he said that at the time we were being told the virus can stay on the surface for ages and it could kill thirty percent of the people who caught it. He said, uh, describing what prompted the Church of England to shut down uh, all churches, not only to congregations, but to clergy. And then he went on to say, but by the way, I'm not a pope, I'm not a dictator, it wasn't all my fault. I was strongly for it, and perhaps I influenced people. No, Justin, if you're leading the show, you know, you've got to take, you take responsibility for the failures, you take responsibility for the credits under your watch. Mm-hmm. And trying to slough that off onto other people by saying it was a committee decision or I'm not a pope or a dictator, true you're not, but that's not how people perceive you in the world. And so at the end of the day, he admitted that uh, he didn't do the right thing. Which well, I think his quote is, if I, had, uh, if I had that time again, I would be more cautious about closing the churches. And to his credit, Nobody got the pandemic right. Okay, it wasn't just Justin closing churches. It was everybody closing churches, uh, all the denominations. But he essentially just locked the churches and wouldn't let anybody go in, including the priest, which is a little bit more stringent than uh, just canceling Sunday services, George. Correct. And there was been a way to have done this uh, that would have been so much more successful and popular rather than just the heavy-handed, top-down, panicky approach, because it came off as panic, it came off as unreason, and these post-COVID uh, 
uh, post facto justifications, they're rational. I mean, they're explainable. They show us what was in their mind, mm. but it doesn't excuse the course of action that they took. And I may, in other words, using conditional language, well, was it a screw up or was it not a screw up? It might be a screw up. It's not quite the answer that uh, people want to hear because this means, well, I might screw up again. Um, this was followed by a foray into Justin Welby's personal life that I was uncomfortable with. We're saying that he suffers from depression and he takes daily medication to deal with this. And he then uh, went on to say that uh, he has problems with depression where uh, environmental things, incidents, people, things that happen, words that are said, will cause him to lose days into depressive holes. Mm -hmm. um, we all knew, I think we knew this, those who followed him and knew Justin Welby knew this in the past. He has used his daughter as an example. His daughter suffers from depression and he made a big show about her depression in the past, how we need to reach out to people with depression. And so now we know it's a genetic trait. He passed it on to his children, his depression. When we, we were in Nairobi, Kenyon, yeah. uh, when we were in Nairobi, we saw, Ke yeah. Kevin mentioned it was obvious, well, it appeared very strong to me that our mere presence set him off. Yeah. And this is where where he told the gathered archbishops uh, uh, not to do, not to pay attention to us when he saw us when he saw you at Lambeth Palace at that one meeting. He uh, called Kevin and George. Uh, do you remember the uh, word? Four no, I don't began with an X. They, but, but I don't want to get into the little things, the examples of depression or, or anxiety and stuff like that. It, and I'm going to set this up. If you look at the history of the Coulson men, going back generation, there is mental illness in our family. It's, it's mostly bipolar. Uh, uh, my grandpa had depression. He was treated with electric shock back in the, the 50s and 60s. That's the way they did it. They finally got him on lithium and he, he, he was able to normalize. Uh, my father, who uh, also suffers from depression, has depression. I have anxiety. I don't have the, the depression. I have the bi I have the <laughs> more of the uh, other side of the, the depression. I'm, I'm never sad. That's not true. I'm sad. But so every family suffers from some type of mental illness in one way or the other. So I don't want to minimize Justin's suffrage here. What I want to say is it does make him more human. And if that's what he was trying to do with this, I don't know if it worked the way he wanted to. Uh, Kevin, I agree too. I mean, uh, I'm the father of two daughters. Of course I have anxiety. <laughs> um, and no, I'm not uh, downplaying uh, yeah. mental illness, nor am I shaming anybody for mental illness, no. far no. from it. No. But what I am saying is how you package those statements. Mm -hmm. When they're packaged to elicit pity, that puts my teeth on edge. When you package it to say, you know, we're still able to overcome, we're still able to go forward. When you use it as a rallying cry that even in my brokenness, I am able to go forward because of medication, my faith in Jesus. In other words, they could be used in a way to build up. But immediately following, I might have done a better job. I screwed up on COVID, followed by I get depressed. What it created was the impression that uh, his yeah. depression 
prompted his decision-making in COVID, in the COVID crisis, mm -hmm. and that he's eliciting our sympathy and pity for his actions. I, maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe I'm uh, too American to realize how I, England works, but. I would have answered it this way. We made mistakes during the pandemic. Everybody did it. The church is open now. Join us Sunday, please. Uh, yeah, I suffer like so many uh, other people in my, my nation with depression. It's treatable. Join us Sunday, please. You know, it, you can you can certainly repackage what you have so it's glorifying to Christ, not something that uh, seeks pity. But I don't want to overemphasize uh, the, the mental illness part of it because so many people do suffer from it. And it is treatable uh, for the majority of people in this day and age through medication, through counseling, through therapy, um, through prayer, through worship, uh, through encouragement, through fellowship. So join us. And I, I ask that Justin would join us as well as we, we pray for the church as it recovers from this pandemic. Absolutely. Well, just, Justin also talked about his prayer life, which I thought was interesting. Uh, he got, he says he gets up every morning at 6 a.m., makes a cup of tea, and then goes to read his Bible and then prays in tongues. Uh, he does this every morning. And then he put in some disclaimers. It didn't make him ecstatic. He didn't jump around with the tambourine. He wasn't filled with joy. And he didn't know what he was praying for, but he just prayed in tongues. And that was part of his routine. Again, he could have either scored a victory uh, with the charismatic folks, but his sort of hedging it around with it doesn't really do anything for me. I don't feel better at it, and I don't know what I'm saying. And I'm still doesn't, depressed. And I still and make I'm still mistakes. Depressed. I still make mistakes I still at the straight level. Yeah. Oh. It, it was not an attractive portrait. Um, I myself do not speak in tongues. Um, there are people in our church that do. I don't ostracize them or am negative about it but nor do i say that to be a christian you must speak in tongues it's just a spiritual gift and like most spiritual gifts are absent from me uh but again how you package these things it's so important when you're trying to present to a non-christian world if if this was an interview that, was with the church times not the radio times but this these is answers the point. more appropriate that's the point here. He was speaking to, was this the BBC? Radio Times. Who, Radio who, Times. Uh, who, who addresses the 98% of people in Britain who do not attend church weekly. And they're all of a sudden hearing a new concept that they haven't heard. What, what's speaking in tongues? I don't understand. Uh, and so he, he the, it was so out of context for this type of program. If you had some, something like this with a, an interview on Anglican TV or the Church Times or Church Post or any other things, it, it would have more context to it. Here, it's just up for ostracization. And not by George and Kevin, but by the secular world. The secular world is like, what the hell is that? W mm -hmm. Gross. You know, you, you, you've given this interview where you made yourself human and now you're making yourself uh, ultra spiritual because you speak in tongues. We don't understand this interview. And mm. I get that. And 
is then uh, moved to uh, a discussion of the Church of England, saying that, uh, heaven forbid that the Church of England should fold under my watch. I don't want to be responsible for that. But it's God's problem, not mine. And that's the quote. It's God's problem. Well, yes, on one level, if we believe that the Church of England is predestined to collapse, it is, you know, God's will. But it's that God's problem. It's not God's problem. <laughs> you guys um, gonna say, in a, in a theological sense, does God have problems? But that's another discussion. Yeah, but can, I don't but as a leader of an institution, to sort of say, well, it's in God's hands. When you're when you're speaking not to a faith audience who understands this but to a secular audience that's an abdication of responsibility was he abdicating responsibility or was he assuming that the radio times and its audience would understand the god's providence argument here and was he making an argument for god's providence or is he saying you know I pray that God give us the strength. If it is will, then there's, we can't stop the speeding train if it's his will. But we don't know his will in, all, in these things. We still are called to do the very best we can. See, there was that no, if you will, unless the Radio Times so edited this that we didn't get a true picture of the man, the way it was edited, there was the no follow-up clause of being upbeat, of yeah. being confident, of speaking to the power of the spirit in the world, Christ on depression, on the Church of England's failures, on COVID and this and that, that you know, our job is to uh, I have a little item from the uh, Bishop of Sao Paulo, Brazil they're closing the churches in, in Sao Paulo until March 15th because of uh, Brazil's got a bad Omicron outbreak right now but the way he packaged it was quite good, saying that, you know, the command for us is to love one another and to bear each other's burdens. And though I very much must be in church to be fully the person I am, I need to bear the burdens of not causing the sufferings of other people. And so, in my thinking, this is why I'm closing the church. I may agree, I may not agree, but he couched that, the Bishop of Sao Paulo in a way that makes it understandable and puts it into context. And that's what's missing from Welby's discussion of COVID or speaking in tongues or the Church of England or depression. Now, the Christian I, context. I would put it up that this may have been misedited or wrongfully edited or ed edited to make Justin look bad. Uh, we have seen that time and time again. The most famous one um, is when Sarah Palin was interviewed by the 60 Minutes. And they deliberately put her in a small chair and they put the camera way up and they created these weird shadows. And, it, you know, the people in charge of producing these types of interviews can make for a very bad interview out of a very good interview. It may have been just as best interview and may have been edited poorly or deliberately bad. We don't know. Um, but I would like to speak for Justin. If our churches are closing, we repent and we return to the fold and we ask God to enlighten us as to how to bring people back into the churches. Because we know God's will is to fill these churches and to have fellowship and worship of him because that's what we were born for, to serve God and each other. But I'm helping you out here, Justin. 
<laughs> yeah, and so. if, if he's if he's going to repent of his action, he needs to follow up by saying, I should have consulted more widely than just the inner circle, because it was the pushback came not from the other bishops or the archbishop's council or the church house. The pushback came from parish clergy and from people in congregations, mm -hmm. people with whom he did not consult, people with whose voices were absent from these deliberations. And so if he's going to repent, he also needs to state what he would have done differently or better, because should we have COVID-22 come, that's going to kill 30% of all the people, we need to have a little bit more dialogue and conversation before these uh, arbitrary things are done. Before we create a class of people who are the new lepers, which at one point was the people infected with COVID, now it's the people who are unvaxxed. And as a church, you need to be leaders in this, not reactors or followers. And I, I well, Christ could be a great example for you. I could point I out the passages the if you want. <laughs> oh, my. well, poor Justin, we've beaten him to a bloody pulp. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it, but that's not the intention. The intention here is to help. Certainly, the viewers know what's going on here, but allow for if Justin's watching this, how to to respond in the future to these types of things. You're being interviewed by the BBC. You're a Christian. They're not your friend. They're giving you an interview program because they don't believe you can convert people. You need to change that. You can convert people through your love of Jesus. So, you know, it, it, it's time to change the BBC, Justin, and we know you can do it. I'm here to encourage you to do it. And we need to talk about General Synod. Uh, there was an article and some news that... Uh, um, they're filtering the new membership of General Synod in the Church of England uh, so that they can everybody can be more like them. And when I say more like them, I mean liberal and inactive, George. Yes, Julian Mann had an exclusive story. He did the hard work digging through the uh, minutes of Synod and all the deliberations. And Julian published it on Anglican Inc. Where... General Synod's governments, in discussing, discussing the governance of the General Synod going forward, it was proposed that a uh, filter be established so that candidates for election to General Synod would meet certain criteria, which were not really spelled out, other than that they were team players, that they weren't sort of loons, or they understood how the church worked. Essentially, they're trying to create a buffer to prevent people with voices outside the mainstream or outside the instant machine from even not being allowed to stand for election for general synod prudence daly the former head of the i think he's former former head of the prayer book society got up and said look you're, this is anti-democratic this seeks to homogenize the candidates before they even are put forward to the people for election Therefore, what you're, what you're guaranteeing is perpetuation of the inner circle in the institution. And uh, Nick Baines, the Bishop of uh, Leeds, um, that was his former title, so forgive me, uh, someplace frozen up north, England. Uh, Nick Baines uh, essentially said, well, yes, uh, that's what we want. And he sort of poo-pooed her uh, 
concerns, and it was passed by vote of Senate. So General Senate has taken measures to make sure it is even more anti-democratic and even more divorced from the reality of life on the ground of the Church of England, because this will keep out the Andrea Minichilla Williams, the Colin Cowards, if you will, the people on the right and the left who really are at the cutting edge of the life of the church and who speak the truth, whether you agree or disagree, those people are out the door and in its place, we're having a general synod be a, uh, a structural copy of the College of Bishops, House of Bishops, where everybody toes the party line. And it's, we describe the, the general, the House of Bishops as being sort of a supreme Soviet where everybody claps in unison and there's all you know 99 percent unanimity on votes well that seems to be the plan for general senate itself if you're yeah. if you're a conservative evangelical or a conservative anglo-catholic and oppose the ordination of women well that's really out of the mainstream we really you know don't want you there nope all right next uh talking point is the bishop of detroit has launched end gun violence uh, to advocate gun safety laws and hey it's a great topic uh, because the culture here in america is different than the culture in britain and, and other places in europe and other places around the world we have uh, written into our constitution the second amendment which allows um, citizens of this country to own and bear arms and there's different interpretations uh, certainly by state to state but what that means and we have millions and millions and here, here here's here's the number for you 320 million guns handguns in america are owned by somebody that's a lot yeah wow cool um we don't have 320 million murders a year by gun uh, we our stats are you know much much lower than that uh, a person murdered by a gun it's like eight eight and a half thousand people are murdered by handguns a year statistically you're more likely to die uh, by being hit by a drunk driver here in America uh, you're more likely to die by being stabbed um, you're more likely to die of COVID. Uh, there's so many more yeah. things you're more likely to die of. So let's just talk about and the you're, you're You're 15 times more likely to die of a drug overdose. At over $100,000 fentanyl yeah, deaths last year. But let's just talk about not just the stats, but a, a bishop in the Episcopal Church wants to take on something that has nothing to do with religion and more to do with politics. Let's just talk about kind of this nature we see in uh, what I'm going to call a secular bishop trying to to fix what she sees as wrong. And I'm saying you could do so much more by, ooh, reinvesting in the family, reinvesting things that would allow people of certain ages not to end up in communities, gangs, and groups that are violent, George. So let's let's hash this out. Kevin, you are evil because you like guns. I don't like guns. I own guns, but I don't play with them. You know, I go to the shooting range once in a while. Please don't call me evil because I own a gun. That's that's kind of silly. But George, let's let's hash this out a little. Well, 
aren't you actually stroking with your uh, hand under the table, your AR-15? Uh, uh, my uh, Amazon stock went up 2%. Thank you for iWatch for telling me that. <laughs> well, Bishop Bonnie Perry of Michigan, which is the southeastern portion of the state, Detroit, and its, its environs, uh, she's uh, a partnered uh, lesbian. She's always been very activist, politically active, a political, uh, a political bishop, and she was elected as one. So this is what the people of Michigan wanted as a bishop. Well, Bonnie Anderson has joined with other gun control advocates to, at, to form a coalition calling for safe, common sense gun safety you, law. You said Bonnie Anderson. It's Bonnie Perry. Sure. Bonnie Perry. Yeah. Bonnie Anderson is, you're, you're right, <laughs> Kevin. She's the deputies. former yeah. former uh, House of Deputies uh, mm -hmm. leader in the Episcopal Church. Bonnie Perry, excuse me. That's right. uh, so Bonnie Perry is joining with other uh, political action groups, uh, some other religious groups, and she's asking for rules that would tighten and regulate gun ownership but the rules she's asking for are already in place and the methods all, that she is uh, um waiting periods background checks they're already there all these things are already there yeah. and she's not really looking for if you read in detail what they're asking for they're not looking for gun safety which is training and whatnot and creating environments that do not uh, favor the use of guns. She's looking at gun confiscation of taking away guns from people um, to prevent what she sees as the society ill. So her intention is, if you will, good to reduce deaths. Mm -hmm. But the process in which she's taking the political process uh, is questionable, and the legal merits of her position under the American Constitution are really unfounded. Um, in my opinion. Well, no, and your opinion is reasoned and statistically correct, but I want to go back to what causes violence. Guns don't cause violence, but uh, children being raised in families without a father or without families or without a mother or broken homes is statistically a much greater cause of violence through uh, weapons, including guns, than anything else we can ever track. And we have the, we've documented this for 35, 40 years, that a child that is raised in a home without a father uh, is more likely than any other to end up a felon, in jail, dead by gun violence, dead by knife violence, dead by overdose. Um, why don't we, instead of fighting the family, which the Episcopal Church sadly has done for 25, 30, 40 years, start embracing the family and encouraging the family and bringing the family back together, encouraging mothers and fathers to raise their children in, into the kingdom. And guns don't cause violence. Lack of knowledge of the kingdom does. Mm-hmm. You're right. I, I, it's a moral revolution that we need to uh, launch in the United States, not another political revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the gun confiscation is misguided. Um, in the United States, 
the statistics, and this is non-controversial, those places with a higher proportion of gun ownership have lower rates of crime, lower rates of gun ownership. It's Chicago, sad, but true. Yeah. Chicago, New York City are some of the most uh, gun-plagued places, and they have some of the strictest gun rules. The state of New Jersey is super restrictive, but it has a problem with gun violence. Florida is very loose in gun laws, and it does not have the, the levels of violence with guns that other states do. The, and the knock-on effect is in Florida, we have a much lower rate of home burglaries because you can basically assume that if you break into someone's house and there's someone there, they have a gun and they'll shoot you. And burglars are rational people. They don't <laughs> rob where they can get killed. Um, and the other thing to remember is that if you look at the history of gun control in Florida, there were no gun laws to speak of up until the 1920s. And the reason why we had gun laws in the 1920s and it was tied to voting was to take guns out of the hands of, of blacks, yep, African-Americans, of Negroes. Mm -hmm. That way, because what the Klan was very strong in the 20s in Florida, because at, at that time was a deeply Southern state, and blacks could protect themselves by having their own guns and could shoot people who broke into their homes or could and, and did not only could they and but they did. did and it worked and the laws beginning in the 20s up through the civil rights movement um basically were tempted to disarm blacks because they tied it to voting. Can you vote? Do you own property? Or do you have this degree of education? Mm -hmm. um, it's the same sort of uh, way of thinking of setting out these things to prevent a certain class of people from owning guns, except the class of people weren't criminals and violent felons, it, were, it was minorities. Well, part of the uh, relaxation of Florida's gun laws in the 70s was the end of Jim Crow laws. And if you look at these pictures of the civil rights marchers, we always sort of focus on the Martin Luther King and the Jesse Jackson and the clergy in the front, but along the sides were armed African-Americans who had pistols who protected the crowds. Mm -hmm. This was true of Florida, Arkansas, Louisiana. Georgia. So gun Georgia, gun control is a form of societal, uh, you're picking winners and losers. You're picking, now we may want felons not to have guns and every state i think kevin is it true that every state you may not if you're a felon you may not own a weapon in, in uh, most states uh, in america if you are convicted and have served time for a felony you are no longer allowed to have a gun um certain exclusions apply yeah if you're the son of the president of the united states yeah, you can be convicted of a felony <laughs> But uh, we, uh, the the show isn't here to protect the guns. It's to show that you're you're barking up the wrong tree. It's not the gun violence that is your problem. It is that you have abandoned the family. You have abandoned the father. You have abandoned the mother and the and the children as a church. Yeah, mm -hmm. we have what I call common sense gun laws in every state already. And we've been fettered through this for 30, 40 years since James Brady was uh, uh, shot in the assassination of Ronald Reagan. We have made sure that all the states have a, a common sense gun laws. And when you find 
uh, people dying of gun violence, they're dying because the gun laws are being broken. And mm-hmm. if you if the laws aren't working, you need to bark up the different tree, and that's the tree of the family. That's the tree of reintroducing the kingdom to your city of Detroit, to your state of Michigan, reintroducing and having revivals to let people know that there's hope. They, one of the one of the examples that uh, Bishop Perry cites is his recent this recent school shooting in Michigan, where a young man was given a uh, a rifle, a 22 rifle by his parents, and he went in and he shot up school, killed people. Not a single uh, law that they're proposing would have prevented this from happening. Rather, you need to look back, and what we're seeing is that this was a dysfunctional family. Uh, the mother actually was in a motel or something with her boyfriend at the time. Uh, the, the events took place uh, basically they bought off a psychotic kid by giving him the toy that he wanted and they weren't exercising parenting because it was a dysfunctional broken family um, how do you fix that with regulations well you fix it you fix it through the saving power of Jesus Christ and creating the societal pressure to keep homes together to keep children instead of just go out this sounds silly, but when I was young, Kevin, mm-hmm. do you remember? Uh, here's a peanut butter sandwich. Uh, you can go play outside and come back when the street lights turn on. Uh, that was, you know, that's we were out. We were, you know, we weren't worried half to death for people snatching us off the street or us doing stuff. And we did stuff. I think our parents would be horrified for looking at it, looking at abandoned houses, all that stuff. But today's over parenting is not tied to moral responsibility and moral formation instead it's more keep the kid in the house but have him play video games or go onto the internet and look at pornography yeah he's not looking at it yes he's looking at it mm-hmm. um, we need a we need a thorough cleanse house cleaning and washing out of the soul of our society so I agree with what Bonnie Perry wants to achieve, but I think that her her energies are misplaced. Well, they are because, and I'm just going to go. I'm going to say one word, and this is the end of the conversation. This happened and started, in my opinion, with no fault divorce. I think Alan Haley agrees with me. You know, we we took out accountability within the marriage. We took out accountability for the husband and the wife. And then we added welfare to it, where the more children you had in or outside of wedlock gave you more financial gains from the government. Enough. We, we've talked about this way too much. Please don't hear this as a topic on gun violence. Hear this on a topic of the broken family and what the church should be doing, including Bishop Bonnie Berry. I, I, yeah. Not my favorite topic, George. But Kevin, you're right. When the government subsidizes something, it gets more of it. Yes, it um, does. Hey, let's have a fun topic. Let's have a theology topic, George. Let's talk about how a priest who, uh, from Arizona and California, same priest, ruined the baptisms of hundreds, if not thousands, of children in the Roman Catholic Church by replacing the pronoun I representing the vicar and Jesus, with we representing the church. 
And I think it's fun to talk about because we kind of have irregular things in the Anglican Church as well. I don't think it goes to the point where the bishop says, oh, you've ruined it for everybody. But uh, tell us a little bit about the story so we can hash it out, George. Diocese of Phoenix, Bishop uh, Thomas Olmsted was alerted that one of his parish priests, the Reverend uh, Father Andres Arango at St. Gregory's Church in Phoenix, when he would baptize people, mostly children, he would not follow the words of the prayer book. Instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Bishop Olmsted looked into this, and it turned out that Father Rango says, well, I've been doing that for 30 years. And he's led parishes in Southern California and Arizona all that time, baptizing thousands of children. And Bishop Olmsted said, well, you know, according to the doctrinal uh, commission of the Vatican, those baptisms are invalid because when you say we baptize you, basically you're saying we the community baptize you. When you say I baptize you, you're standing in the person of Christ and Christ is baptizing you. So those baptisms are invalid. They're no good. So from all those babies need to be rebaptized. If they've gotten married in a Catholic church, they need a new Catholic wedding. If they've become ordained as Catholic priests, they have to be reordained as Catholic priests. The sacramental foundation of the later sacraments, confirmation, ordination, marriage, so forth, all need to be redone or regularized in that case. And so this has caused uh, the Catholic haters to have a great deal of fun. And uh, it's just a fun... But it's also a story that Anglicans, though not as uh, precise on this point, we still have people who do this sort of thing too. We have what we call irregular issues that occur inside and outside the liturgy. Um, and it is something as simple as i'm gonna go back to kevin's life 1991 i was going to saint stephen's episcopal church in huntsville alabama my rector was robin rao and robin wanted to take the prayer book eucharist right one and two and put them in a easier to read pamphlet or a, a folder so people came into the church instead of going back and forth through the prayer book trying to find all the, the stuff here it's real simple we have right one and two with the colics and readings it'd, it'd be real easy and it was but he had to get permission from the bishop to do it and the bishop hemmed and hawed i don't know if i want to take this out of the prayer book and put it here well it worked uh, people who were newcomers came to our church. It was easier to follow the liturgy, easier to get into it. They fell in love with it. And people who were using this little uh, notebook for the first couple weeks eventually graduated it back into the prayer book because they saw everybody else using the prayer book. It was just a, a method. But that took the permission of the bishop. And I, I was remembered of the, reminded of that when I read the story that liturgy is important. And we, we, you know, we, we want to be sure that we're kind of all on the same page. But I don't think that if a priest within the Anglican Communion or the ACNA or the Episcopal Church had done the same, that it would have invalidated the weddings and Eucharists and uh, baptisms. Am I wrong, George? Uh, no, because I don't think anybody would have picked up on it. That's uh, true. This basically arose uh, from a practical purposes, no. Um, 
if you if it was done by a junior priest and a senior priest was there, he would have taken the guy aside or the girl and said, "Don't you ever do that again." Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but we don't really believe in well, most Anglicans. Well, this Anglican, <laughs> this let me Anglican. be clear, doesn't believe in the magic theory that the app, that the precision of the language is what determines the the spiritual uh, things that happen. You know. It, as regards to baptism, uh, this is an outward sign of the inward transformation, and that inward transformation can take place before, during, or after baptism, or can never take place. Mm -hmm. uh, but we hear, I see this all the time in the Episcopal Church, certainly. The most famous is substituting Father, Son, Holy Spirit with uh, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer. Um, or when you say the Nicene Creed, uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. And then you hear people close their lips because they don't want to say the filioque. I've got people in my church who in the next line, with the Father and the Son, God is worshipped and glorified. Not he. Instead of saying he is worshipped yeah. before, God is worshipped and glorified. Now, do I believe those who, who uh, cons conspicuously omit the filioque clause or who change he to God for feminist reasons, or, or do sustainer, redeemer, creator, uh, Manny, Mo, and uh, Jack, um, for the Holy Spirit, for the Trinity, is the Trinity affected by that? In my view, no. I just think it, I th just think it's vulgar. Uh, I, well, I we think, it, I think it, if you are doing it in rebellion, there's an issue. If you're doing it because. It, it, it was part of your tradition, and it's just easier for you. That's that's fine, but if you're you're speaking and deliberately not saying he because you want to say she, that that's a form of rebellion in my mind, and you couldn't want to get counsel from a priest in this, you know, and, and talk yeah. about if, that rebellion. And a priest is a person under obedience and orders. Mm -hmm. Part of Father Arango's problem was in the post-Vatican II world. He was free to do any whatever sort of loosey-goosey thing he wanted to do in his mind. Uh, in the Anglican world, there are clergy who are very conservative who will omit the filioque clause because they believe in the orthodox uh, version of it, and they'll conscientiously admit it. They're liberals who come in with redeemer, sustainer, creator, whatever. But we're under obedience. We don't. We're not at the level of authority where we can rewrite. The, the creeds. The creeds were set down uh, at the Council of Nicaea and authorized for use of the church. And I think it's presumptuous of a priest, even though they may have personal reservations, to uh, make their own personal edits. Now, mm -hmm. there will be a problem. What if the Episcopal Church puts in uh, gay marriage rights? Um, how will I read them? I just wouldn't do them. But, but what I would not do would be to make up my own version on the fly. It's one of these things that I think, whether it's for good reasons or bad reasons, whether it's for rebellion, as you say, Kevin, or whether it's because we think we know better because of our theological understandings, when you start to take liberties with liturgy, um, you're moving yourself out of obedience to the tradition in which you're ordained. And we're not Baptists. We're not free Methodists where we can just wave our hands and do what we want to do. People yeah. under our orders. And, and Kevin is not 
the prayer book police. But please, please hear me here. I'm not trying to, you know, identify the best prayer book or the best uh, liturgy and stuff like that. I'm just saying that we do it for a reason. The reason is to have cohesiveness, that we're all, you know, have the same creed. We all have the same uh, way and style with which we offer the Eucharist, uh, right one and two. You know, it, it it's cohesiveness and, and much, much more. Uh, right, we talked but that. Again, yeah. I, well, I don't want I don't want to over play this point because there do come times when you are compelled to take a stand mm -hmm. but I don't think you should take the stand quietly or secretly mm -hmm. I mean if you're not willing to say the filioque clays tell your tell the bishop and he may give you permission to I'm omit it sure absolutely if you want to uh, if you want to use a different name of the Trinity tell your bishop and he or she may give you permission to do that mm -hmm. don't just do it and think that you are scoring a victory um, the Episcopal Church is going through the liturgical calendar and they are, are planning on adding Barbara Harris, the first black woman bishop. Now, she was a horrible human being. I mean, she was mean and nasty and, and vulgar. You, and you, yeah, she used language that was very flavored with spices. <laughs> and it's not her moral character uh, that is the cause for being set forward as someone we should emulate and commemorate, but rather it's her it's the tokenism a black woman bishop the first isn't that wonderful mm -hmm. doesn't matter that that person was not a good person and then they want to re remove william portia dubois who was one of the one of the leaders of swanee and a theologian for the 19th century well he was also his family owned slaves therefore we got to cut him out now it's sort of convenient that there's so many people in the calendar of saints that if you have to commemorate somebody, you can pick the other person, not Barbara Harris. But I, I'm not saying it's as cut and dried as I maybe appear to saying, but we do need to uh, own up when we do recite the creeds, not do it our own way, mm -hmm. not do baptisms our own way. All right, and, all turn, and, all, and when things are... Let, we have one more story. I want to save it for Tuesday. We've, we've up 55 minutes here, given the audience something to look forward to. We're going to talk about church for the sake of others on uh, Tuesday. Uh, just a little bit of a you know, cliffhanger here. I'm Kevin Carlson. And I'm George Conger. And you've been watching episode 719 of Anglican Unscripted.